0: Morning Redeemer Church, my name is Brian Parks, I'm one of six elders here at the church and uh, it's been delightful this fall to have many opportunities to preach to you and I'm really looking forward to this one as well as we continue in the book of Mark. Is it any wonder that people are highly skeptical about authority? You know, when I get my Gulf News every day, Sometimes the only thing that enables me to open it up, the only thing that draws me in, is the same feeling that makes me slow down when I'm driving to look at a car wreck. It's to open it up, and and it's littered oftentimes with stories about people who are in authority who have abused their authority. Whether it's a, a politician or a government leader that's abused authority, or a business leader who's taken someone else's money. Sometimes it's a teacher or someone who has abused their pupils or treated them in an improper way or even parents who uh, have neglected or exploited their children. And, and this this skepticism about authority filters down into our lives, doesn't it? And it even affects our children. You might have been in grade school and, and sometimes the children on a particular sports team would be... Skeptical and rebellious against the club captain. But we need authority in our life, don't we? It's something we can't escape. I want to ask you, who is your authority? Who guides your daily decisions? Who or where do you look for direction about what is right or wrong for you in your life? Now for everyone... There are really only two choices. The passage this morning is Mark chapter 1 verses 21 through 39. If you have your Bible, please open up to that, and we'll be looking at a primary theme here of the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 verses 21 to 39. Follow along with me. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. It might help you to write down Five characteristics of the authority of Jesus that Mark reveals to us here in this passage. You might write authority at the top and then write these five characteristics. Authority to teach. Second, authority over evil. Third, authority to heal. Fourth, authority. Authority from the Father. And fifth, authority over his mission. Authority to teach over evil, to heal from the Father, and over his mission. Let's first consider how Jesus dis- demonstrates amazing authority in his teaching. Last week, Mac taught us about the end of John the Baptist's ministry and the beginning of Jesus's. And Mac ended his sermon by considering Jesus's first authoritative act as king of the kingdom who'd now come. He was, it was to call two sets of brothers, fishermen, and he called them literally with these words, come, follow me. And they left their businesses, their father, their families, their nets, the boats, and they followed him. And now at the beginning of this passage that we're reading now, Jesus leads them back into their own hometown of Capernaum, which was at the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. We know it's their hometown because Simon and Andrew's home is there, we learn later in the passage. But Mark wants to draw our attention first to what Jesus did on perhaps What was his first Sabbath day of ministry in the synagogue? The Sabbath, of course, was the day of rest for the Jews, as God had commanded them to do. They were to do no work and keep the day holy. And they would gather at these synagogues, that was the name of the building, to pray and hear teaching about the Scriptures. Scriptures which, of course, we would call today the Old Testament. Often visiting Jewish teachers would be allowed to read from the scriptures and to teach what it meant. And so Jesus begins to teach. But as soon as he opens up his mouth, they know something is different. I'm sure I'm sure many of you have had good teachers. You've sat under their teaching and good teachers hold your attention. Good teachers keep you interested in the subject. They make you want to learn more, in fact. They're knowledgeable about what they're teaching about. Good teachers are wonderful. But this was really different. Jesus taught with unparalleled authority. No one had ever taught like this before. In verse 22, the people were amazed, it says, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And down further in verse 27, it says that they were so amazed that they asked one another, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority? The teachers of the law, no matter how good they would have been, would have likely referenced prior traditions of interpretation for a given passage. And they would have maybe even offered humble opinions about what God's law meant in this place or that place in the Scriptures. But it was always God's law. It had authority over them. But Jesus, Jesus is different. He spoke as if the scriptures were true and right, of course, but also as if he had authority over the scriptures. Where the Old Testament prophets would say to the people, the Lord says to you, Jesus instead said, I say to you. It must have been that day in the synagogue as if Jesus was speaking the scriptures himself. And now, it it wasn't just that it was history or maths or science that he taught about. Jesus here was teaching about ultimate things things about God and his holiness, things about mankind and his sin, things about forgiveness, things about hell and judgment. And what it took instead to enter into the kingdom of God. It's amazing, isn't it, to consider that everything, everything literally that Jesus spoke was true. It was right. It was correct. It was wise. It was brilliant. Jesus' words were not just God's ideas. They were God's words coming from God's mouth. The same mouth, in fact, that had said, let there be light. And there was light. Do you think of Jesus like this? Brothers and sisters, we should praise Christ for this perfection of his. That everything he spoke was true and right and full of authority. As we continue in the passage, Jesus' authority and teaching is confirmed then by his authority over the evil that he encounters. In the midst of his teaching, Jesus is abruptly interrupted by a man with an evil spirit. And the spirit calls out to Jesus, What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now Jesus, of course, was full of the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? We learned that in the verses prior, at the very beginning of Mark, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And here, he's being confronted by an evil spirit. So it's holy versus evil, right there in the synagogue. Now, it was a commonly held belief during that time that naming a spirit or a person was a magical way of gaining control over them. So it's likely that this spirit was not just identifying Jesus. He was making an aggressive attempt to control Jesus, to have power over him in some way. But Jesus, Jesus had already confronted and faced the king of the evil spirits. We read about that. When he went out into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan, and he defeated him. And so Satan's demons have no power over him. And so with mere but power-filled words, Jesus banishes this evil spirit. Be quiet. Come out of him. And the evil spirit is banished. He's sent away. I preached last spring on Mark chapter 5. We'll come to it again in the coming weeks and months. And in that passage... Jesus casts thousands of evil spirits out of one man. His name was Legion. And I taught about what we believe about demonic powers as relates to the Christian. I encourage you to go hear that sermon. I talked about five different things. I'm not going to repeat them this morning. But there are a few things I want to tell you. First of all, Satan's ultimate goal is to prevent people from repenting and believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's his ultimate goal. Contrary to what contemporary horror movies portray, Satan doesn't mainly delight in making people's heads spin around 360 degrees. And he doesn't delight primarily in making people speak in a low, gravelly voice. No. Satan wants company in hell. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to be there alone. And in addition to that, he wants to cause trouble for Christians who are not going there. He wants to cause trouble for them through temptation into sin. There's a famous hymn that you may know. It's called, It Is Well With My Soul. I love, I love to sing that hymn to myself. And when the author, speaking of Satan's assault on the Christian, uses, he uses this word called "buffet." Now, don't don't read that word and think uh, all-you-can-eat food lines, okay? This is buffet. It's different than buffet, okay? Buffet means to strike against or hit repeatedly. And this is what the verse says. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. The cross is our ultimate weapon against Satan and his forces. For us as a church, Redeemer Church of Dubai, Satan would love nothing to buffet us with temptation into sin so that we would... Be sinning against one another, in fact. Criticizing one another. Backbiting with one another. Hiding our sin from one another. And the way to not give Satan a foothold, as the scripture uses that phrase, is ongoing repentance. It's strengthened belief in the gospel. And living each aspect of our lives guided by the gospel. This will guard Redeemer Church of Dubai against Satan's attacks. Are you on your guard against him? Are you resisting him? If you'll look down at verse 34, I want to answer a question that many of you might have regarding Jesus' interaction with the evil spirits. It's just, in some ways, a few phrases. It says in this verse that he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Why wouldn't Jesus let them speak? Why wouldn't Jesus want his divine identity announced? It's what he came for after all, right? Think about it this way though. If you were a king or a queen and you needed to hire a public relations officer, someone who would tell others about your royal role, about your character, about the purposes in your kingdom, would you hire someone who hated you? and at every turn was seeking to undermine you? Of course not. Of course not. And these evil spirits have no part in Jesus' mission. And that's why Jesus wouldn't let them speak. He wouldn't let this demon speak. He wouldn't let any other demon speak any more than they could just eke out at the very beginning when they first encounter him. To have evil spirits announce his identity would be to undermine everything that he was about. It was first John the Baptist's role to announce Jesus' coming. And now it was Jesus' role to reveal himself to the people. And later he would pass that role on to his chosen apostles. But it was never for the evil spirits to participate in. As that first encounter with an evil spirit in the synagogue comes to a close, Mark describes to us another demonstration of Jesus' authority the authority to heal. Look with me at the text. Mark tells us how the disciples and Jesus leave the public setting of the synagogue and they move into a private setting of Simon and Andrew's house. And there, unnamed in the text, Simon's mother-in-law is discovered to be lying sick with a fever. Jesus is told. And he promptly goes to see her and he heals her. It says, the fever left her. This is a touching act of kindness. Demonstrating that Jesus' healing miracles were not only to be a display of his authority for the crowds. No, they were also to be individual acts of compassion for those people he healed. Jesus has authority over our bodies. He has the power to reverse reverse the effects of sickness and disease. And that's so powerfully demonstrated later that night as the sun set and the Sabbath ended and the people could work again. And what did they do? They brought all the sick and demon-possessed to Simon Andrew's front door where Jesus was. They flocked to this man who they had seen earlier in the day and they knew he was filled with power and authority The whole town gathered there, Mark tells us. There's three things that I want to tell you this morning about healing. There's much more that we can say. But the first is something that actually many non-Christians know intuitively. And that is that the Bible teaches us that we should pray for healing. James 5 verse 14 says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church and pray over them, to pray over him. And you should do that too. I would encourage you to call on us as elders to pray over you and pray with you if you are sick, especially if you're dealing with a particularly serious illness or an extended illness. And that doesn't rule out what you all should do for one another as well. Pray for one another. I know up here just in the pastoral prayer, Glenn prayed for Diane Hague and her... Sister, who is gravely ill back in Canada. I want to encourage you, if you're not continuing in prayer, to continue to pray for Dave. Dave is, is continuing to battle this degenerative nerve disorder. And I would ask that you would lift him up from week to week, if not day to day. Number two, the only reason that anyone ever gets well from sickness, whether miraculously or through medicine is because of the authority and grace of God. When our second child, Sarah, was in Joanne's womb, we had a routine scan done. And I remember the doctor walking back into the room to speak with us, and I immediately knew that something was not right. It was the grim look on his face, too grim to be bringing good news. He told us that the scans revealed that Sarah had cysts in her brain. And these were cysts that were a common indicator of severe mental retardation and a greatly shortened lifespan, Uh, a lifespan that might even just be days or even weeks. (laughs) We were devastated, and we were scared. We prayed, and we got other people in our church and around us to pray for us and to pray for Sarah. We waited And as she grew in the womb, further scans did nothing to dispel the belief that Sarah would not be with us for very long after she had been born. God's hand, though, was on Sarah even before her birth. Joanne had to check into the hospital to have Sarah manually turned in the womb. Um, By the way, if doctors ever tell you that they're going to uh, do a procedure that's uncomfortable, that's code word for extremely painful. And that's what he said about this particular procedure. Um, you see, Sarah's feet were lined up first to come out. And that's called breech, if you're not familiar with the process. And uh, she, she had checked in and was laying in the bed, was on the IVs. And the nurses had used the ultrasound machine and they said, yep, she's still breach." And the, the doctor came in and then immediately had to step out for 15 minutes. Came back in 15 minutes later and he put on the latex gloves and he said, I'm just going to check one more time. And he grabbed that ultrasound wand and checked, and his jaw dropped. He said, Did you check? He looked over at the nurse. He said, She's not, she's not breech anymore. Joanne took the IVs out. We got up. We walked out of the hospital. No procedure necessary. It was amazing. When Sarah was born just a few days later, they took her for scans immediately out of the delivery room and they told us they would report back to us in two days. Graciously, the doctor called even that night. And he said, we did the scans and we cannot find these cysts anywhere. They're gone. Whether those early scans were wrong or whether God healed Sarah of those cysts, we praise God for his hand on Sarah. And when God heals miraculously, we praise Him because He has all authority to heal our bodies, regardless of what modern medicine says can or can't happen. When people are healed through medicine, or simply through the unaided healing processes of the human body, we praise God then too, because He created bodies to heal, and He gave mankind the wisdom and intelligence to design medicines. Either way, God in His authority has has authority over our bodies and He is to be praised. Number three, just like these miraculous healings pointed to the authority of Jesus as the Son of God, so too when we help others find physical healing through prayer and miracles or through doctors and medicine. This points to the gospel. This points to the gospel. In other words, when we help someone who's sick We are imaging Jesus who is full of compassion and has authority to heal. So we should be mindful to remind those whom we care for or pray for that God is the ultimate healer and that he has provided a way for us to be healed of the greatest sickness of all that everyone suffers from, and that's sin. Use your compassionate caregiving particularly if you're in the healthcare industry. Use it and your faithful prayers for healing as open doors to talk about the gospel and share it with people. Back in the text, Mark shows us where Jesus' authority to heal comes from. Jesus gets his authority from the Father. The scene in verse 35 immediately shifts from the chaos at Simon's door that prior night to, a, to the quiet solitude of a pre-dawn morning. It's dark. And Jesus gets up very early. He leaves the house and he goes off to a solitary place where he prayed. As much as we see the authoritative and the powerful Jesus in all these verses before this, we now see Jesus dependent. Jesus specifically dependent on the Father in prayer. You know, prayer is one of the most humble acts of the Christian. It, like no other Christian activity, expresses our need for God, our dependence on Him. And that is why it is so hard. That is why it is so hard. Jesus, even though He was God in the flesh, had humbled Himself and He was supremely submitted to the Father. And because of that, he was filled with and given authority. Do you remember this verse that Norm read for us? These verses out of Daniel chapter 7 about the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. And who approaches him? One who looks like a son of man. And what happens? The Ancient of Days gives him all authority and power. That was Jesus. That's what Daniel saw. Jesus' authority was conferred authority. It was authority from another source. And when you and I pray, we are declaring our dependence on God the Father as well. We're declaring it. Let me suggest a model to you to ensure that your prayers stay God-dependent and God-focused. Some of you may know of this. It's an acronym. It says it's ACT. A-C-T-S. I want to encourage you to use this as a pattern for your prayers. The first letter, A, stands for adoration. And that simply means that as you come to God in prayer, I I want to encourage you to first start by praising God for His character, for His characteristics, for His many perfections. Now, when I go to pray, oftentimes I don't, I don't unfortunately have those things immediately on my mind. So I keep my Bible close. And I flip it open oftentimes before I'm going to pray. And I'll read a psalm or two. Or I'll turn to one of the epistles. Or I even look in the Gospels. And from those very things I see, I will begin to adore God in prayer. Pray in adoration of God. Secondly, the C stands for confession. Take some time to assess your heart when you pray. Don't quickly confess generalized sin. Oh, Lord, I know I was really unfaithful to you this past week. It's really easy to do. But it's most helpful if you'll really examine your heart. And you'll walk back through, maybe even just the past day, and think about the specific times when you sinned. I encourage you, confess those to the Lord. And when you confess them... Remember his grace and forgiveness. The only reason that you can be in his presence confessing to him is because he's offered forgiveness and grace to you through the cross. The third letter is T, Thanksgiving. Tell him about the things in your life that you are thankful for. I'm from the United States of America, and some of you might know that yesterday was the yearly celebration called Thanksgiving. And I love that holiday not just because we eat lots of food together, but I love that holiday because of all the holidays throughout the year, it's perhaps the one that's been that we're able to um, imbue it and fill it with Christian meaning. Christmas has become very secular, of course, and it's, and uh, and materialistic, but Thanksgiving is a time when we can simply thank God. And that's what we did yesterday before we ate our meal. We gathered together and we recounted together the things that we needed to be thankful to God for. When you do this in your prayers, when you thank God, I want to encourage you to focus not simply on material possessions, material blessings. Sometimes those draw our attention away from the things that are far more permanent. The things that God is doing for us in his infinite love, his faithfulness, his guidance in our lives, giving us the church. Thank God in your prayers. And the last letter is S, supplication. Supplication is simply a big word that means making requests. After we've adored and thanked God and we've confessed our sins for him, to him, our hearts are in a place where we can come to Him and ask Him to work not only in our lives, but the lives of others. Perhaps this is a point in your prayer where you could pray for those who need healing around you in our congregation. You can pray for God's work in the lives of your non-Christian friends that He would bring them to a point of repentance and faith. I want to encourage you to use this Acts model for prayer. Even this week, maybe if you're a small group leader, and you lead your group in prayer, walk through the A, the C, the T, and the S this week. Certainly, if you're a parent, I want to encourage you to do this with your children, teaching them how to pray. Tell them what each of the letters stands for, whether it's over the dinner table or maybe when you tuck them into bed at night or if you pray together with them before they head off to school every day. Pray to God to declare your dependence on Him just like Jesus did. Lastly, we see that Jesus had authority over his entire mission. He would not let anyone else decide what he had come to do. As soon as the disciples woke, they discovered that Jesus wasn't there. And in verse 36 and onward, it tells about their reaction. They searched for him. And when they found him, there's, there's like this hint of frustration in Peter's voice. Can you hear it? Everyone is looking for you. It's it's as if Peter is saying, Wow, you really knocked their socks off last night. Now we've got the crowd interested. Let's gather them back up and let's set up Jesus of Nazareth International Ministries. And I'll be your first in command. Jesus' response is stunning, isn't it? He doesn't want to do that. He says, Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also, that's why I've come. It's clear, of course, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that he will not let the crowds nor his disciples determine what he does or where he goes. He alone has authority over his mission. Now I know that this might sound odd to some of you, but it's true. It was not Jesus' primary mission to heal the sick and cast out demons and help people physically. It was not his primary mission. Instead, Jesus makes clear what his highest priority is. Did you notice it? There in verse 38, we go go to the surrounding villages so I can preach there also. His primary mission was to teach and preach. What Mark tells us, of course, in verse 15 of chapter 1, the time has come, the kingdom of God is, at, is near, repent and believe the good news. That was a summary of what Jesus taught everywhere he went. He says, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 17, I have come to call sinners. We'll come to it soon in our sermons. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, that the reason that he is about to heal a paralyzed man is so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Certainly, Jesus healed and helped people out of his compassion for them. Dave is going to, in fact, highlight the next five verses next week in a very compassionate encounter that Jesus has with a man who has leprosy. But the main reason for these acts of compassion was to point to his authority as the Son of God and to reveal his unique identity as the Messiah. If it had been left up to popular opinion, the crowds or his disciples, he would have been touring the country on an amazing miracles tour. But he simply didn't do that. His compassionate help was secondary to his message. Now there's a lot of talk these days about what Christians should be doing with their time. There's a lot of talk about that, a lot of books being written, a lot of conferences being gathered together. And we, the church, and individual Christians must also make sure that we're looking to the right authority when deciding what our mission is. If we let the unbelieving world around us set our agenda or determine our mission or tell us what we should do, rather than the Word of God, we're going to go astray. The world, of course, would either like for us to just go away or to go about the business of making the world a better place simply through service, you know, as they define it. You know, and usually they don't. They want us to leave our silly little good news message at home. Don't bother talking to us about sin and eternal punishment. Of course, there are plenty of reasons to do good things and to serve people. There are biblical reasons to do that. We do good works to obey God. We do good works to love our fellow man. We do good works to display God's character. Jesus said, you are salt and light. We do good works because it's the fruit of the Spirit at work in us. We can't help but do good works if God's in us. And we do good works to win a hearing for the gospel as well. But God's kingdom only grows when more people come into the kingdom. And people come into the kingdom when we share the gospel with words, which leads to people repenting and believing in Christ. That's kingdom influence. That's kingdom growth. Christian, are you clear on what the mission of the church is? The gospel message should be at its core. If you're not a Christian, we're really, really glad that you're here this morning. You're always welcome at Redeemer. And uh, perhaps someone brought you along, or maybe even you've come purposefully, and you've come and you're investigating the Christian faith. This is an excellent place to do that. I want to encourage you to continue coming back. It's better than reading a book, not the Bible, by the way, The Bible is something you should read if you're investigating Christianity. Do you remember the question that I asked at the very beginning when I first stood up? Who is your authority? Who calls the shots for you? Who or what do you look to as the ultimate guide for how you should live or what you should live for? There's really only two choices I said at the beginning. And if you're honest, I think that you would say, honestly, that you are your authority. You make those decisions. But I need to tell you something that may come as either a relief or it may even come as an offense to you. This Jesus, who is full of all authority in the scriptures, he is alive. We believe he is alive now and he has ultimate authority even over you, whether you recognize it or not. In fact, each of us who in this room is a Christian, who is a follower of his, had a time in our lives when we recognized Jesus' claim of authority over us. And we recognized that instead of giving him the Submission and the honor and the allegiance that he was due. That instead we were asserting our authority against him. You you could have called you could call us rebels. It's what we were. Now uh, some of us were nice and religious rebels. Some of us, on the other hand, were blatantly immoral and irreligious rebels. But we were all rebels nonetheless. But in his mercy, God opened our eyes to his kingship over our lives, and we surrendered. We admitted our rebellion, and we received his grace and pardon made possible by his death and sacrifice for us on the cross. He, Jesus, died a rebel's death so that we wouldn't have to. I urge you, friend, do the same. Christ created you. He knows you through and through. He knows what's best for you in your life if you haven't even cracked open a Bible ever before or ever darkened the door of a church. He is your authority. But until you recognize your rebel's rejection of his authority over you, you stand opposed to him, actually, no matter how nice or moral you are. What is holding you back? I want to encourage you to talk to the person who brought you or talk to myself or talk to just the person next to you if you're considering that question that I've posed to you. What an incredible picture of Jesus as authority over all. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord Jesus... You are that son of man in the Daniel 7 passage. And we know that you are seated at the right hand of the ancient one. And you have been given all authority and power. Lord, we praise you this morning. We see your authority demonstrated in these scriptures this morning. Lord, and we pray that you would enable us to live for you because of what you've done for us in your authority to forgive sins on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. Amen.